2002, uh, February 17, Salt Lake City. It was the date and the place of a remarkably strange victory. You may remember it. It was the Winter Olympics and the event was the men's short track 1,000 metre speed skating. The uh, little giggles tell me you remember it. Let me remind you though, if you don't, in the quarterfinals, the fellow's name was Stephen Bradbury. In the quarterfinals, he'd finished third, which should have meant he was eliminated from the event, except that the guy who came second was actually disqualified, which meant Bradbury could go on and compete in the semifinals. In the semifinal, Bradbury was in last place, well off the pace of the medal favourites. However, in that race, three of the other competitors in the semi-final crashed into each other and that allowed him to take second place and advance through to the final. And in the final, again, Bradbury was in last place, way behind in the final lap, when all four of his competitors crashed out at the very last corner, leaving a shocked Bradbury to take the gold medal. The first for Australia in any sort of uh, Olympic Winter Games event. A very, very strange victory. Hilarious, really, if you were watching it. And you had to admire Bradbury after the race when, uh, to the interviewer, he said, it's good, but it doesn't sort of feel right, you know. I wasn't as strong as the other guys out there, but I'm going to take it. (laughs) It was a victory, but not really one you could take much credit for. In many ways, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. A very strange victory. It's such a famously strange victory that now in Australian vernacular, we have the phrase, doing a Bradbury. Okay, whenever anyone wins sort of unexpectedly and surprisingly, he he did a Bradbury. We're thinking about uh, strange victories today as we turn to Joshua chapter 5 and 6. And in some ways, you could say really that what we read of here in our passage is the Israelite nation doing a Bradbury. Uh, In fact, the strangeness of uh, the victory, the significance of the strangeness, is what we're going to be thinking about today. Because, you know, the strangeness of this victory actually teaches us something very important about the Lord God. So make sure you have your Bible open at Joshua 5. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin. And uh, let me pray and ask God to help us as we consider these strange things. Heavenly Father, thanks. With our Bibles open, uh, we're ready to be addressed personally by you. So we thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit who brings your word to us. And Father, we ask that you might help us to understand the truth about you and that we would respond rightly to that truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good news, um, after uh, two weeks of reading about Joshua and the Israelites preparing to enter the promised land of Canaan, today in our passage is actually finally in. Um, we've skipped a couple of chapters. If you did hear the talk from last time, if, uh, somehow, perhaps through technology, you'll know that last time we th- were in chapter 2. This time we're jumping to the end of chapter 5. I'm hoping you have the chance to read the whole book. You might have already done it since the teaching series Began, But let me just quickly skim the action of chapters 3, 4 and 5. In chapter 3, we can read of the spectacular crossing of the Jordan River. The river's in flood, it's a raging river, but the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They go first, as soon as their feet 
touched the water, the water stopped flowing from upstream and the Israelites crossed on dry ground. Deja vu. It's almost the same way that the previous generation um, escaped Egypt under Moses. So this generation enters the promised land under Joshua. From there they went and uh, they camped on the border of the city of Jericho at a place called Gilgal. There they were circumcised, they celebrated the Passover festival and they finally, after 40 years of waiting, ate some produce of the promised land. And pretty much that's where we pick up the action at the end of chapter 5. They've entered the land, but they are yet to conquer the land. And Jericho is the first main stop on their take the promised land tour package. So what we're expecting is a battle, warfare, struggle, but in fact what we get is a series of strange surprises. And the first one of those is a visitor, a strange visitor. Verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. A visitor who was a warrior. The drawn sword is a giveaway to that bit. And Joshua asked the most obvious question of any man standing before you with a drawn sword. Verse 13, Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Are you one of my soldiers or one of Jericho's? Are you my ally or my enemy? That's a sensible question of a guy wielding a sword. The expected question, but the answer is unexpected and stunning. Verse 14, Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. This strange warrior is not a comrade, but in fact he is the commander. He is the commander of nothing less than the army of the Lord. And when a high-ranking officer comes into your presence, you salute. When the commander of the army of the Lord comes, well, Joshua knew what was required, verse 14... Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, I wonder if you've got those deja vu bells ringing again in your head. I've heard that before, haven't I? That bit about the sandals and things? You have. It's almost exactly the same words that what the Lord spoke to Moses from the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. Put all together, this strange warrior is the Lord himself. If you remember way back in chapter 1 of Joshua, the Lord promised there that he would be with him just like he was with Moses. And so throughout these earlier chapters, we keep getting these echoes of the way the Lord was with Moses being repeated with Joshua. In chapter 1, he promised he would never forsake Joshua. And here, just before Joshua is to lead the Israelites into their very first battle against the city of Jericho, the Lord comes to him, the ultimate commander-in-chief, to lead him and to guide him. Now, I'm thinking that might have been a bit scary for Joshua. I mean, he's face down in the dirt and he is before the Lord. But as well as being scary, it must have been really incredibly assuring, don't you think? I'm not on my own. I, I can be strong and courageous, for the Lord is with me. And Joshua listens then as the Lord goes on to explain his strategy, uh, his military tactics for conquering Jericho. 
And it's a strange, almost bizarre strategy, really. Point two on your outline and verse one of chapter six. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out. No one came in. You may remember that uh, Jericho was a city surrounded by a wall. And obviously the wall made it difficult for, uh, for the city to be attacked, let alone captured. And the narrator here in verse 1, the narrator actually stresses the difficulty of the task, doesn't he? The gates have been shut. The city has been closed up tight because of the Israelite threat. No one goes out. No one goes in. All of which makes what the Lord says next to Joshua pretty surprising. Verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. That's strange, isn't it? I'm thinking that all Joshua could see was a dirty great big wall around the city that seemed impregnable. Yet the Lord asks him to trust him, that although the task may seem impossible, he will deliver Jericho into his hands. He's to trust the Lord. And obey his commands, his strategy. Now, who knows what Joshua may have been expecting the Lord to say next, to describe next. I'd be thinking, you know, ladders, flaming arrows, ramming the gates, that sort of uh, exciting sort of military stuff. I wonder, though, about, about Joshua's facial expression as he continued to hear his commander outline the strategy. Verse 3. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. Now, let's be honest, okay? Any way you look at it, That is a very strange strategy. You're not going to learn that at the Academy of Defence in Canberra, I don't think. I know the Americans used shock and awe in Iraq, but this seems to take shock and awe to this sort of absurd extreme. Joshua has at his disposal a nation of soldiers, thousands of men, and yet they had to march around the city once every day for six days. The The priests are to blow their trumpets And then on that final day, after seven times going around, everyone will shout and the wall's going to collapse. Does that seem strange? It's familiar, but it's strange. People out there? Yep, good. Some people, you know, in... (laughs) Very strange, thank you. Some people in reading this description, uh, they've actually tried to help the Bible out a bit. And so they suggest, well, okay, yeah, that's fine. What was really happening was that the priests and the trumpets were a distraction so that the soldiers and the inhabitants of Jericho, they'd be staring at them and they wouldn't notice all the other Israelites busily digging out the foundations of the wall. That's a nice try, but it's not part of the Lord's strategy. And as we'll see, you know, any attempt to make the Lord's strategy less strange or more sensible, that actually runs against the whole purpose of the chapter against the whole point of the strategy. We actually need to see and recognize that this strategy that Joshua is getting, it's bizarre from his commander-in-chief. It is strange indeed. And, And yet as we keep on reading, we see it actually produces a strange victory. Point three, verse six. 
So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Like we've seen before, those two verses actually show us that Joshua is indeed strong and courageous. Because remember, what that means is he takes the word of the Lord and he obeys it. That's what it is to be strong and courageous. Even if it might have sounded strange to his ears, he implements the Lord's strategy precisely. In fact, as we keep reading, I don't know if you were listening earlier as Wayne was reading, it actually can become a bit tedious, all the verses that come next, because it seems like we're reading the same things over and over again. What the Lord told Joshua, we hear Joshua repeat to the priests. Uh, what the Lord told Joshua, Joshua repeats to the people. Um, what, the priests do, what, what Joshua tells the priests, the priests do. What Joshua tells the people, the people do. And it's the same, it's, it's on and on. It's almost tedious. But in fact, it's not tedious, it's obedience. It's Joshua being strong and very courageous. That fact is, is being emphasized by the very repetition of it all. But of course, we want to get to the seventh day, don't we? So jump across to verse 15 with me. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then jump across to verse 20. Verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, um, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Now that's incredible, don't you reckon? Imagine being there and seeing all that happen. What a strange victory. You'd almost be sitting there saying, hang on, the Israelites have done a Bradbury. They've done a Bradbury. Even the description of this victory is a little odd, really. I mean, you think about it. If someone were to make a movie about this battle, uh, make a movie of it, I guess perhaps instead of being called 300, you could call it seven or around the city in seven days, something like that. But imagine in this movie, imagine the time given over in the movie to the collapsing of the wall. Imagine the build-up to that. And imagine what you'd see in the movie of the charge of the soldiers through the rubble into the heart of the city. It'd be huge. But here in Joshua 6, it's recounted with great brevity, isn't it? There's hardly any detail at all. Far more detail given over to the strategy and the instructions and the marching and the trumpet blowing the actual fall of the city is described quite briefly. All in all, it's a bit strange. Strange strategy, strange victory, strange description. Strange, that is, until we read the final narrator's comment in verse 27. Then we see it all for what it really is. Not so much strange as glorious. Verse 27, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Strange strategy, strange victory, not at all. For as far as the narrator is concerned, it all added up to demonstrate beyond any doubt at all that the Lord was with Joshua, that it was his victory and it was to his glory. And so the Lord's fame spread throughout the land. There's that old children's song, isn't there? 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But that's not right. That's rubbish. The Lord fought the battle of Jericho. It's to his glory. It's not to Joshua's and not to the Israelites. So is there any room for boasting in this victory by Joshua or by the Israelites? Hardly. I mean, imagine the stories told back in the camp uh, after it was all over. Should have heard the way I blew that trumpet. Man, I am a fearsome warrior. Don't mess with me. I've got my trumpet right now. Did you hear me shout? What a shout. The wall collapsed because of my shout. Be ridiculous, wouldn't it? The way the events are described, the very events that are described, leaves no doubt whatsoever in anyone's mind. The only way this could have happened is because the Lord made it happen. He was the commander. It was his strategy, his victory. So he deserves the glory. He deserves the fame. It's very clear. Is this the only time the Lord does such a thing? Well, not at all. In fact, if you keep on reading through the book of Joshua, you'll find it again and again. Um, The Lord as a warrior for his people, bringing glory to himself through the strangeness of his strategies and victories. You can see it in chapter 8 in the battle of the city for Ai. You can see it in chapter 10 when they take on five kings of the Amorites. And in chapter 10 we read that more of Israel's enemies were killed by hailstones hurled down from the Lord by heaven than by the swords of the Israelites. Then you could keep on reading the Bible, get into the next book, the book of Joshua. You could see there how 600 enemy Philistines were struck down by a fellow with a cattle prod. Or you could keep reading and see how one scaredy cat leader and just 300 men defeated an opposing army so large they were like locusts on the ground and they defeated them with lanterns and shouting. God-glorifying strategies and victories. God-glorifying strategies and victories. And on and on we read through the Bible. The stories just keep coming until, of course, we read of the strangest warrior and the strangest strategy and the strangest victory of the entire Bible. Point five. The enemy, well, this time not Jericho or the Amorites or the Midianites, this enemy, this time was the ultimate enemy, the evil one himself, the devil, and the powers of his evil rule, sin and death, the ultimate enemy and yet the strangest of all strategies the son of god himself would leave heaven would make himself nothing would take the very nature of a servant and would become a man the man jesus of nazareth and this jesus though he was the son of god he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross He endured the shame and the mockery and the hatred of the very people he came to save. A strange warrior indeed. Alone, beaten and bloodied and nailed to a cross like a common despised criminal. If you think marching around a city for seven days blowing trumpets is strange, that is nothing compared to the cross of Christ. Imagine hearing the Lord explain his strategy to defeat the ultimate evil and describe it like that. You'd think he was joking. 
The cross of Christ seems like a tragic joke, a thing of revulsion, utterly foolish. And yet not long before he died, Jesus said to his followers these things. I've printed on your outline. Jesus said, now the prince of this world, meaning the devil, now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. See, Jesus came as a warrior to give up his life in order to accomplish the victory. Back in Joshua's day, the climax of the strategy after seven days was the shouts and then the wall came down. For Jesus, for Jesus after some hours on the cross, he simply spoke three words. It is finished. And then he died. And as spectacular and as glorious as that collapsing wall must have been back in Joshua's day, the victory Jesus achieved was far more spectacular, far more glorious. For in his death, he had indeed defeated the devil. He had conquered sin and death. It was finished. The victory was complete. Here's the way the Bible describes it from Hebrews chapter 2. Again, it's on your outline. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. A fantastically great victory won by Jesus in the strangest, most unexpected of ways through his death. None of us treat God the way he deserves to be treated. We seek satisfaction and fulfillment in life in other lesser things. We give our hearts and our minds to lesser things. And so we dishonor God. We are foolish, arrogant rebels against the one who made us. We've given ourselves to the devil's purposes. We're enslaved to him. We sin. We are guilty before God. We deserve nothing but, his, but, but death and his punishment. That is the natural human condition. But in the gracious, glorious genius of God, Jesus stepped in and took our death and our punishment for us. In one incredibly bold sacrifice, he took away the devil's hold on us. He opened up a way of escape for us. And to prove and demonstrate his victory, the Lord God raised him to life once more. A spectacular triumph. So you see, now when anyone comes to Jesus in loyalty and love, when anyone submits to Jesus and treasures him above all things, their sin is dealt with completely. Their slate is wiped clean. They move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. They do nothing but come like a child in helpless, dependent trust to Jesus. You know, becoming a Christian is doing a Bradbury. But you gain not an Olympic gold medal, but eternal life. A strange warrior, a strange strategy, and a strange victory. Like marching and trumpeting and shouting, a crucified man... In the first century, in an obscure part of the Roman Empire, so weak, so pathetic, so foolish. 
And yet for those with eyes to see, it's nothing less than the power of God. And it's all to his glory, you see. It's all to his glory. There's no room for boasting by anyone saved by Jesus. If you're here today and you're, and you're saved by Jesus, and you say, I'm a Christian because... Whatever you say next has got to be not about you, but about him. Because you've contributed nothing. You can't say, I'm a Christian because of my good life. No. I'm a Christian because I'm a religious person. No. I'm a Christian because I made a decision for Jesus. No. I'm a Christian because of all that God has done for me. All the glory goes to him. There is no credit for us. The only boasting possible is boasting in the Lord. It's all to his glory. It's all to his fame. But what a great comfort it is, don't you reckon? That the Lord is a warrior on behalf of his people. The Lord is a warrior on behalf of you. For the Israelites back in Joshua's day, resting, I guess, after the victory in Jericho, they would have been stupid to be boasting about anything that they had done. Instead, they should have been filled with thanksgiving and humility. And if they had the chance, they should have boasted about all that the Lord had done for them. They should have praised him. How much more so is that true for us? The victory has been won. We have nothing to boast in, but lots to be thankful for. Lots to praise the Lord for. Not just here in the safety of church on Sundays, okay? But out there in our week, for the victory of Jesus is to be to the glory of God. And so our desire should be, our ultimate, deepest desire should be that the the Lord's fame should spread through our town and our state and our nation and our world. It should be our desire. That's why he did it. For his own glory, which is right. So this week, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be fantastic if every single person in this room who has been saved by Jesus this week had the chance even just once to speak out what the Lord has done, to boast in the Lord? Wouldn't it be great to pray this morning that, Lord, give me just one chance this week to spread your fame? Be wary about praying that prayer, though. That's a dangerous prayer. God loves answering that prayer with a big fat yes. You've got to be ready for that. But what a great privilege, don't you think? To carry the name of Jesus and to be chosen messengers to spread his fame, to spread his glory. For he is worthy of all honour, glory and praise. We see that so clearly in the Battle of Jericho we see it so much more clearly in the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus. How about we pray? (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for acting so decisively and wonderfully for us. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his willingness to win the victory that we could not possibly have won.
We thank you, Father, for the apparent foolishness of the cross. For it's so evident, Father, that it, could, it can be nothing but your power. Give us eyes to see that, please. And, Father, give us a desire to boast only in you. Give us a desire to spread your fame, your glory throughout this land, throughout this world. And, Father, we pray that prayer I mentioned. We pray that you might grant us just even just one opportunity this week to spread your fame and give us the strength and the courage to seize the opportunity. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.